There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. My name's Samir Rahim, and this week we're talking to CNN journalist and the political scientist Farid Zakaria about the election of Joe Biden, the future of populism, and how the pandemic has affected the US, and what we can learn from those nations who have successfully contained the virus. His new book is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, which evaluates the crucial political and social lessons we should be learning from the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for joining us, Fareed. I know it must be a busy time for you all right now in America. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do this. Um, firstly, I've got to ask, how does America feel now with President-elect Biden preparing for office? Well, for those of us who were uh, deeply dismayed by the Trump presidency and by Donald Trump as a, as a leader, uh, it's, a, it's a relief. But you know, that relief is tinged with, with, at least in my case, a real worry because uh, two things. One, you know, we had a very near miss in terms of going down a path of what I've described as illiberal democracy, you know, a democracy where the elected leader really systematically abuses uh, power, abuses the rule of law, abuses all the protections, all the, all the kind of inner stuffing of democracy, you know, the norms, the rules, um, the institutions. And the second piece is, of course, uh, Donald Trump did get 70 million votes, despite, despite being impeached, despite the attacks on democratic norms, despite a pandemic, and despite mass unemployment. And that tells you that, you know, this kind of right-wing populism or cultural nationalism, call it what you will, uh, has a hold. In, and it's not just in America, I think. It's, it has a hold uh, among uh, Publics in the West, but even outside, when you look at someone like Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, and even Modi in India. And is it really over? I mean, in terms of Trump, I mean, no chance of any successful legal challenges or anything like that. Uh, it would be stunning if there were, because there really has been no evidence of fraud in this election. Uh, it's extraordinary when you think about it, you know, for the first time in American history, uh, more than 50% of the people voted by mail and ballot. Uh, as you probably know, America does not have a national 
election system. It's a crazy quilt patchwork of local, state, and county systems. And they all function very well. There's even, I mean, the Trump team in court uh, has a very different uh, set of uh, findings than Donald Trump himself. The charges in court are fairly trivial, you know, that the, the election observers were 15 feet away when they should have been six feet away uh, from some of the counting. In one case, they seem to found apparently 15 dead people voted. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about 150 million ballots cast. Nothing that seemed even remotely likely to overturn the differences, even in these small states. Of course, um, it might be a new dawn in America, but we still have the virus um, and um, it's still with us and its effects are still uh, having a devastating uh, impact in America um, and indeed the UK. As you describe in your book, it's been handled pretty poorly in the US. There's been approaching now 250,000 deaths. And do you think that it was a significant factor in, in Trump's defeat? Oddly, it's not clear. I mean, I think in general, the fact that he was so clearly incompetent mattered. Um, you know, as I write in the book, one of the things the pandemic has revealed is this sense that there are governments around the world that whatever their size uh, are just not functioning very well. The great debate of the 20th century was uh, the quantity of government. You know, do you have a big government or a small government? Are you more socialist? Or are you more capitalist? Today, I think the real debate is about the quality of government. Do your institutions function? And I think both Britain and the United States have shown themselves to just have governments that don't work so well when you compare them, not just to the Singapore and Hong Kong, but you know Taiwan, which is a very messy uh, democracy, South Korea, which has gone through its own impeachment proceeding. You know, these are vibrant democratic societies. Uh, and of course, Germany, Denmark, you suddenly realize that there is a real premium on having governmental institutions that are well-funded, um, respected, where there's a degree of social trust uh, and where there are honorable professions to be had in, in being government officials, bureaucrats, uh, technocrats. Um, the US and Britain in particular have had this 40 years of an assault, the, the Thatcher-Reagan assault on on the idea of government as the solution. And when you spend 40 years delegitimizing, defunding and demeaning government, well, guess what? <laughs> when you have a pandemic, it doesn't work so well. Yeah, you describe how America particularly, you know, has great pharmaceutical companies and research universities, labs and, and, and health institutes, but still has suffered terribly with, with, the, with the virus. And is it, is it governmental failure um, uh, or, is it, or is it failure with the private providers as well? I mean, where does the, where does the blame really lie? No, it really is. It, this is a public failure. This is a failure of the American government and, and I would argue about, about the British government as well. And, and look, you can look at the other places in Europe that are doing particularly poorly in general. Uh, it, you know, it's Spain, it's Italy, it's places that have not had very strong effective governments. The one surprise, by the way, is France, and one has to learn more about it, but the French healthcare system is generally uh, quite highly regarded. And my own suspicion is that part of the problem here is that the French uh, simply don't like to <laughs> take, take instructions and, and uh, flaunted most of the simple social distancing guidelines. I think actually what you're going to see in this, in this pandemic is uh, particularly in the United States, that we are going to now enter phase two of the pandemic. 
Uh, phase one was largely one where the public sector had to respond. And I think it's fair to say it essentially failed. Phase two is going to be one where the private sector has to respond with therapeutics and vaccines. And I think you'll see a remarkable success. And I think just as America underperformed in the first uh, phase, it will overperform or outperform in the second. Um, and we see that already with uh, Pfizer having announced the first vaccine and, and one that is 90% effective. Now, we need to learn more, but I think it's fair to say that you're going to be surprised on the upside, as they say in, in the, uh, on Wall Street, with what comes out of America's private sector. Is there a sort of cultural aspect to this as well, Britain and maybe America even more so, you know, the, the land of liberty where people don't really like taking orders, they don't like government telling them what to do, even wearing masks have become a sort of political issue as compared to some other uh, cultures you may describe, which are may, maybe a bit more uh, willing to go along with the restrictions on people's lives. Well, I think that there is some truth to that. Uh, America is a, you know, is was born in an anti-statist revolution. Britain has a strong anti-statist tradition, but I think one can make too much of it because, first of all, you know, while we are, we are, we seem to be unable to deal with the infringement on personal liberty that is involved in wearing a mask, but we are perfectly willing to deal with the infringement of, of on liberty which entails a total lockdown. It makes no sense. You know, in other words, if we were to take the very modest infringements on, on liberty that are in, entailed in you know, some of these social distancing guidelines, we obviate the need for the much larger uh, infringement on, on liberty, which is you, that you can't leave your house, you can't go work, you can't go to the office. Um, I think many of the cultures in which it's worked are plenty individualistic. I mean, you know, I don't, I think that, you know, Denmark is a proud tradition of individualism, as does Germany. Um, I think New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, Taiwan, as I say, is a much more boisterous place than people imagine. There is this kind of idea of Confucian collectivism, which is, I think, more myth than reality for anyone who spent time in that part of the world. So I think one can make too much of it. I think where the anti-statism does come in, is we have been reluctant to allow government institutions the independence and authority that they need to function. I think it's more that than the fact that we are, you know, we, we regard the wearing of masks as the kind of, uh, you know, the thin end of the, of the fascist wedge or some kind of grand slippery slope where, you know, today wearing, wearing masks, tomorrow will be in the gulag. That, I think that's nonsense. You write about the attitude towards expertise, which has changed certainly in public discourse in the last five to 10 years um, um, in the West, where there seems to be a much more um, skeptical attitude towards people in authority, even scientists telling us what to do. You know, we have the, this vaccine hopefully coming now and others along the road, but certainly in Britain, there's been um, a lot of concern about whether people will actually take the vaccine and whether they'll be worried to take it or and public health campaigns are going to be launched around it very shortly. Do you feel that that has been a, a, a significant part of um, the failure in, in the response to the pandemic as well? Uh, yes, and I think it's, it's part of a much broader phenomenon that is worth talking about. So it's easy to say, look, of course, we should be listening to scientists 
though, you know, it's worth noting that, that there are scientists and scientists and the science does not provide one simple answer. But in general, I think it's fair to say that places that have been more attentive to the science and have been more uh, willing to have the technocrats in charge seem to have done better uh, than places that haven't. But why do we have this problem? I think it is part of a larger uh, class divide that is growing in much of the world, particularly the Western world, between people who have some degree of formal education, you know, broadly speaking, college degrees and people who don't. If you look at the people who voted for Donald Trump, for example, the single best predictor is party affiliation. Uh, registered Republicans voted for him 94% or something like that. The second best identifier is whether or not you had some college education. Those with a college, some kind of college education, you know, not only a four-year degree, but even beyond that, um, tended to vote for Biden. Those who had no college education tended to vote for Trump. Um, that distinction is also very a powerful predictor of who voted for Brexit in the original referendum. It is a powerful predictor, roughly speaking, of who votes for uh, Le Pen in, in France uh, and, and her allies versus people like Macron. You know, and that divide is one you can see even in places like Turkey and India, where Erdogan and Modi will use uh, their, you know, their identification with the masses uh, and juxtapose it with the urban educated elites who are seen as, you know, out on cloud cuckoo land. So that that class distinction has become very, very important. I quote in the book of a lovely line of the American historian Richard Hofstadter, who said, uh, in the old days, intellectuals used to be ridiculed because they were so useless. Um, today, they are, they are ridiculed and feared because they are so vital. In other words, we have become a much more technocratic, merit-based society with a great deal more need for expertise. And we resent the fact that people, there are these experts who are gonna tell us how to live our lives. It's perfectly captured in Michael Gove's famous line, during the Brexit campaign, the British people have had enough of experts. I think that was the frustration. He was trying to, I would say, pander to more than voice, but uh, but in any event, he was he was right in identifying that frustration. And it's strange when we when we now are faced with um, the undeniable fact of a pandemic in Britain turning the, the British government has sort of turned to experts and tired scientists and done press conferences with them in order to sort of gain some of the authority that they earlier um, disdained. So it turns out expertise turns out to be useful when you're actually in, in a situation coping with a pandemic. Exactly. And I think that this is the, the, the tragedy here is that, of course, we need experts and we need them more and more. But the challenge is for the experts to understand how um, how difficult it is for people who are not in those positions and who have no real access to that world. You know, somebody living in a rural area who does not have a college degree, who works with his hands or her hands, um, you know, feels very alienated and, and, and feels, a, you know, a gulf of uh, class and, and feels that those urban elites with these fancy degrees look down on them, uh, make fun of them, live very different lives from them. And we have to find some way to bridge that divide because it's, uh, you know, so that's why I say in the book, it's not just that people should listen to the experts. I experts also need to listen to people. We have to learn how to communicate 
with some better degree of familiarity and empathy with people and not just treat them as the kind of uneducated masses who need to be instructed in how to live good lives. And the pandemic, as you, as you write, has also exposed um, quite um, appalling levels of inequality. Um, it seems to be that the people who are suffering most are those at the lower end of the income scale, uh, racial minorities particularly as well, um, and also uh, the people who are out there working um, who are not, um, you know, like me in lockdown in my <laughs> in London in my house, um, people who are out there uh, exposing themselves um, to the virus. And, and, and if that division between rich and poor um, becomes a sort of um, uh, a division between who survives and who, who doesn't, that's going to be quite politically dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, this is the biggest long-term effect that I worry about, the, most, the, the largest long-term negative effect of the, of the pandemic. Um, it's, it's exacerbating inequality in every sense, everywhere. You know, so if you start with just at the broadest level, one of the great good news stories of the world over the last uh, three decades has been the reduction of global inequality. You know, as countries like India and China have grown their middle classes, moved people out of poverty, the, the number of you know, rich people versus poor people in the world uh, has narrowed. Uh, and that's been a great, great good news story, except that it is now being reversed as countries like India and parts of Africa go through the pandemic and they've had to do these lockdowns. They've found themselves uh, losing jobs on a scale that is almost unimaginable. The Indian economy shrank by 25% in one quarter, largest in recorded history. They also have no means to borrow in the same way that West, the West does. I mean, the West can essentially issue, not just the West, the West, China, Japan. The advanced industrial world can issue debt almost unendingly. Uh, these countries can't. So you take that, that macro level. Then you look at uh, companies. It's the big and powerful companies that have strong lines of credit, big brand names, diversified operations. They're surviving. They're even thriving if they're digital companies. It's the little, uh, what we call in America, the mom and pops that are doing badly. I give you an example, even just when the book publishing industry, book publishing has actually done well through the pandemic. It, it turns out not everyone is just watching Netflix. There are some people reading books. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So book sales are up, but Amazon's share of the market has dramatically increased. And who's go, you know, who has been left behind? The little independent bookstores. And then we come to the point you were making. All the people who can work digitally are doing fine. We're all inconvenienced a little bit. It's a little weird. Um, I would probably be in a studio with you doing this uh, under normal circumstances, but we can work fine. There's about 30% of the, of the workforce in America, I suspect the same number in Britain, who just can't do fine. I mean, anyone working in a restaurant, a hotel, a, a shopping mall, a cruise ship, for these people, it's the Great Depression. And all these inequalities, what one thing we know about you know, bad times and when people get pushed into bad times, it's not so easy to recover. Even if a vaccine does become widely available and gets distributed in the next six months, um, which I think is on the, on the optimistic side in terms of just how fast all this can happen. Um, but even if it is six months, it will have been almost a year that all these forces will have been at work. Um, it's not so easy to restart your mom and pop when the big hardware chain has taken away all the, all the business or Amazon has taken away all the business. Uh, it's not so easy to find that job when you've lost it for a year and lost those skills and, uh, and you know, these, these forces have atrophied. So I worry a lot about this. I think it will be much, there'll be a much longer drag than the global financial crisis, which really was a case where there was a massive liquidity shortfall. The state could provide the liquidity and slowly but surely everything kind of reset back to normal. This one is much deeper. With the financial crisis, there, was, there were people to blame. There were the bankers, there were the elites. Um, with a pandemic, in a sense, it is a natural disaster, but people are going to ultimately hold their governments responsible, aren't they? And do you think that people looking at other countries that have dealt with the pandemic better, um, uh, just as take China, for an example, do you think that the Chinese model, uh, um, maybe a slightly more authoritarian model, is one that people will be more attracted to in the West? Well, the interesting thing is that I've noticed that there isn't a clear um, uh, correlation between the pandemic and whether it's, it helps uh, incumbents or it doesn't help them. So there are some places, as you know, in Europe where the pandemic has helped the incumbent enormously. In Germany, Angela Merkel is up to, I think, her record highs in terms of approval ratings, whereas it has hurt Donald Trump, I think, a little bit, although, interestingly, not in the areas where the pandemic was most, uh, where, where, the, where people most hard hit by, the, uh, by, by COVID-19. Trump did, did well in those places. So I think it's a little bit confusing, and these effects are longer term. You know, think about the financial crisis. It took years for us to realize that it was fueling a kind of right-wing populism rather than what one might have thought would be the normal thing, which would be a left-wing populism. After all, it was a financial crisis caused by the irresponsibility of the private sector. And yet it, it, what you saw was countries lurch rightward rather than leftward. Um, so I'm not sure where this ends up uh, taking us. I do think what is likely is that it will, it, will, it will change politics and change politics in a way that, uh, that you know, you're going to be searching for 
leaders who reassure you, who give you, a, who exude competence, who seem to have things under control. At least maybe that's my hope. But I think the move from Trump to Biden is very much one of kind of a return to normalcy, a return to somebody who believes in government, a return to somebody who, uh, you know, who understands how the mechanisms of government work. Um, but, you know, with politics, there's always the reality that you, you have a kind of raw material and then it can be shaped as you will by political entrepreneurs. If somebody comes along and says, you know, as, as Trump did, it's all China's fault, uh, there will be people who, who believe that. And then, you know, there'll be others who believe other things. I don't think the democracy versus dictatorship thing will work very well because, I mean, after all, China did well, but Iran did terribly, Russia didn't do so well. And the country that really did best of all uh, it's probably Taiwan. I'm calling it a country for, you know, for practical purposes. Um, South Korea, both of which are very, very democratic. So I'm, there is no real correlation, as far as I can tell, between dictatorship and high performance on, on COVID. There is, a, there is a correlation between competent governments, some of which were dictatorships and some were democracies. And Trump tried to stoke um, fears of China um, describing the virus you know, as a Chinese virus. And that's part of his longer agenda, it seems, you know, with um, trying to beat down the, 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 the challenge of, uh, of China. Do you think that as the two great powers in the world, that there's an inevitable clash going to happen between those two countries? There is an inevitable clash in the sense, in the broadest possible sense, or maybe a better way to put it, there's an inevitable competition I don't believe that there is an inevitable Cold War. Um, look, China is now the second most powerful country in the world. I think in, in researching the book, I was, I was surprised by just how far it had caught up. So I, it's the second largest economy in the world, but it is now larger than the next four economies after it. So if you take you know, Germany, Japan, Britain, France, and put them all together, China is larger than that. Uh, military is the second largest military spending in the world. And again, larger than the next four put together. So we really are entering a new bipolar age where the United States and, the, and, and China tower above the rest. China is very advanced in terms of uh, eco the economy. It is not a copycat economy. Of, of the 500 fastest computers in the world, 230 are in China, which is twice the number that are in the United States. So this is formidable in terms of the competition. But we live in a very interconnected age. Um, at the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union did $2 billion of trade a year. That was the best year. The United States and China do $2 billion of trade every day. So, you know, we are stuck together and it's going to be very hard. I mean, if you had an, an, a total unwind of this, you would be looking at a very different world than we live in with uh, much, much less growth, much less innovation, much less connectivity. So I suspect instead what we will, what we, we will be in is a kind of gray zone, part competition, part cooperation. Um, we will, there will be areas where the world will feel open and inviting, and there will be areas where it will seem one of you know, closed off systems. I think that there will be a lot of buying and selling between China and the West. But there will be areas like 5G where there will be much, there will be walls. 
Um, it's nothing we, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. Um, it, this, this, this version of bipolarity will be very different, I think, from the 1950s and 60s. Um, and, and, you know, and again, we have a choice. And one of the things I end the book with is trying to outline just the degree to which there are all these structural forces out there. You know, the, we're being pushed in various directions, but there's a lot of human agency. There are a lot of things we can do uh, that will either shape things for the good, for greater prospects of greater global cooperation, or for the bad, you know, for greater uh, nationalist competition and rivalry and arms races and all that. This bipolarity is inevitable. A cold war is a choice. That's us for us to decide how we want to handle bipolarity. And you know, the, the devices on which we're communicating, certainly I am, are all made in China. Um, it seems inconceivable that we could um, decouple ourselves from uh, all the manufacturing goods that China uh, China produces. I mean, certainly those jobs aren't going to come back to uh, America, are they, as, uh, as Trump promised? I think one of the most important lessons the United States needs to learn, and I think that this applies to Britain as well, though you are less susceptible to it than we are, uh, is that we've had a four-year experiment of mercantilist trade policies under Donald Trump. And I think it's fair to say the evidence is across the board that it has failed. So Trump's single statistic that he used to point to during the campaign was the trade deficit, America's trade deficit with the world. You know, we import more than we export. Uh, the trade deficit has gone up every quarter under Donald Trump and is now at an all-time high. So here you have had the, the most mercantilist trade policies since the 1930s. America now has the highest tariffs it has had since the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s. And our trade deficit is higher, not lower. Um, manufacturing jobs have not come back to the United States, uh, despite the renegotiation of NAFTA, despite the tariffs against Europe, against Canada. There's really no, no metric by which you can say they, they have succeeded. And the cost has been very high. Just one example, in order to, uh, to shield American farmers from the massive loss of, uh, of, of business, because China, of course, put retaliatory tariffs in place, the U.S. federal government has now spent $60 billion on agricultural subsidies, in addition to the normal agricultural subsidies, to make America's farmers whole. Um, and if you, if you add up all the costs uh, that the consumer has had to pay, that American firms have had to pay, that you've had, we've had to pay in terms of farm subsidies, it's staggering. So it has been a grand uh, failure. Now, will we learn that? I don't know. The seduction of mercantilism is very strong because you, you know, it allows you to look at your economic situation and to blame foreigners and to blame outsiders rather than asking yourselves why you, you can't be more innovative or more productive or reorganize your economy in certain ways or reorganize your workforce in certain ways. And nobody likes to look at the mirror. Um, it's much easier to blame people who look different, sound different, and speak differently. We've seen that a little bit with um, the Brexit debate over here, and we're coming towards the cliff edge at the end of this year about whether we're going to get a deal or not. With the, um, you know, the idea that we've got to protect British fishing, and uh, it's all about the fish industry. And in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of tiny um, part of the British economy, but it takes on this greater symbolic importance. Um, perhaps in a way um, similar to what you're talking about with America and agriculture. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me the entire Brexit debate is 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 essentially a, a version of what you just described, which is uh, it, it's the symbolism uh, is all on one side and the substance is all on the other. Uh, if you if you ask yourself just from an objective point of view, looking at it from the outside, how on earth can Britain claim that it is, uh, you know, wants more global trade and it wants to be a, a you know, a trading nation when it is cutting itself off from its largest market. Um, it just makes no sense, right? And, and then people will say, well, it's not cutting itself off entirely. Well, clearly it is going to have less favorable conditions of trade than it had when it was a member of the European Union. And so, I, you know, for those of us on the outside, it just feels, um, it feels illogical. Uh, it's one thing if you didn't want to be a trading nation, but if you want to be a trading nation, which you have to with, you know, 1% of the world's population, it, it makes no sense. But then you look at the symbolism and you understand it, you know? I mean, I think the better way to understand Brexit is not to look at the economics, but to read Richard II and the, you know, John of Gaunt's speech about the scepter dial. And, you know, think about how, how far back we're going there. The Brits, Britain has always regarded Europe, continental Europe as a kind of, you know, envious, infected, uh, lesser land and has always wanted in some way to, to say as an island, uh, you know, how does in those lines, uh, they talk about, a, uh, Shakespeare talks about a moat separating Britain from the evil infected uh, continental mainland. I think that's the heart of Brexit. The economics all points in the other, uh, other direction. Well, it remains to be seen whether they'll have a sort of reality check which may be coming quite soon people advising people to um to buy their phones now because in january they're going to be a lot more expensive you talk in the book um just to end up that after the 1918 uh, pandemic um the president new president was warren g harding and he campaigned on the theme of return to normalcy uh, and joe biden seems to be returning to normalcy that seems to be what he's um campaigning on but is is that enough do or do we need to actually address some of the deeper issues that that covid has exposed i hope so i mean i think there's going to be a a, a real tendency to want to return to normalcy uh because this has been so um discombobulating you know it's much much uh, more more uh dramatic in t- in terms of the way it has changed people or the way it has affected people than anything we've been through. Uh, I was talking to an Indian businessman who pointed out to me that, you know, 9-11 affected him not at all. Uh, It was something between the United States and some Middle Eastern countries and changed travel procedures at airports a little bit. Um, The global financial crisis, he said, had no effect on him. Like the vast majority of Indian businesses, uh, they were not leveraged with these exotic financial products. They felt obviously a bit of the global recession. But but COVID-19, he said, has affected every single Indian. But it's, I'd go further, it's affected every single human being on the planet. So I, I don't think we've had something like that, an event that literally affects everybody on, in the world. Uh, and there's going to be an urge to go back to normal. But I would hope that we would take it as a wake-up call, as a way of asking ourselves, well, what didn't work here? What did it expose? Uh, what can we learn from it? Uh, one of the reasons that countries like Taiwan and South Korea did so well with COVID-19 is that they had SARS and MERS, the two, two similar disease you know, respiratory uh, illnesses, and they did badly with them and they learned from that. And one of the lessons of the book is that you have to learn from failure. Uh, 
Um, there's no question that broadly speaking, the West has failed at this. Uh, but the question that remains is, can we learn from that failure? Can we learn uh, what went wrong? Wh wh who did it right? Um, it requires a certain kind of humility. It requires getting out of the denial uh, phase, but it's crucially important because we're entering a very different world, pandemic or no pandemic. The pandemic accelerated some of that change. Uh, and so we, in the Western world, I think we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to make some of these changes that will allow our societies to function better, that will allow our people to have a greater, a better combination of dynamism and safety and security? Uh, if we're not willing to do that, I think the pandemic will accelerate one more feature of life, which is the slow decline of the Western world. Well, on that note, Fareed Zakaria, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Samir. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all from us. Thanks for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.